This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 553 for April 5th, 2017. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast, folks. And if 2017 didn't seem weird enough to you already, not naming names, not pointing fingers, it just got a little bit stranger. Uh, I'm, I'm labeling this the kimono peaking edition of the Macworld Podcast because Apple uh, opened its robe wide and we got a good look inside. That sounds much dirtier than I meant it to. Uh, yeah, but, I hate that phrase. Yeah. I've always hated that phrase. Well, like, I never thought about it as much about... It's <laughs> so, creepy and gross. Now, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, for Apparently Dirty Old Man, and a senior <laughs> contributor at no, Mac it's World. very common, and especially in business-like situations. Like, every time a business is going to do deal due diligence on another business like they that's what they say that's true it's and that, that voice anyway. you hear is Susie oaks the executive editor Hi. of macworld pointing out maybe metaphors <laughs> aren't good uh let's Got my say robe uh, uh zipped up tight here. let's zip that robe up the um apple invited uh some press not us we're not jealous no we're not jealous. Uh, behind, not exactly behind the scenes. Actually, it's funny. So the, the, let me give you the top, the top level news, which you'll have heard by now, dear listener, because uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday, on April fourth. Uh, Apple invited a few members of the press uh, to talk about um, what's coming, which is weird because it never does that. Um, and the thing that I think is uh, it's not exactly funny is they invited them to uh, this uh, uh, lab they use where they do product development. It's the PRL, the Product Realization Lab. Um, it's a sprawling old building that apparently has been around there for uh, quite a while. Um, it's uh, it's in a, a business park, not um, uh, not like a, you know the, the new fancy corporate campus or one – infinite loop and uh, it's full of prototype machines and other stuff. And they kind of walk people through it, but links were covered up and then they sat in a conference room. Uh, so <laughs> it was, it was a little, it wasn't showmanship, but it was a little funny. Uh, and they, I mean, me- they have conference rooms all over that campus. Yeah. They so, could have been yeah, anywhere. It but really could have been any conference room, but they wanted the name of the building in the articles. And so. I will also point out, here's a slight detail, Susie. I don't know if you noticed this. There were photos that went with the, uh, Five reports that came out from different publications. The photos were provided by Apple, so I was thinking they must have sent someone must have sent a photographer along, and then I realized, hey, these are all the same photos, and uh, so there's photos in the lab and whatever that are carefully taken. So these were provided by Apple PR, uh, and some articles labeled uh, clearly, and others not that that's where they came from. Um, so these were it's not staged photos, but they sent a photographer. So there's pictures of. Uh, the three executives, it's uh, uh, Senior Vice President of Software Engineering, Keg Federici, Vice President of Hardware Engineering, John Turnus, and the Vice President, Senior Vice President of Worldwide Marketing, Phil Schiller. Uh, Phil and uh, and uh, Craig Federici, we've all known for quite a while. And uh, John Turnus, uh, I don't know his name as well, but I know he's been kicking around there for a bit now too. Um, so uh, that's the scene. They're in this uh, – They so Apple secretly invited all these reporters out there. From uh, several publications and uh, Susie, you tell them that they the spilled the beans. Mac Pro is going to be updated, but not the circular, cylindrical Mac Pro that we've um, been waiting for an update for. That's getting a speed bump as of today. I don't see them in the store yet, but I'm sure they'll be there any second now. And that Apple's going to make a new Mac Pro that they can design a little better and be able to upgrade it with. Uh, Cutting edge uh, graphics cards. So, but that's not going to happen this year. Yeah, and so the, you could read into that that say maybe it'll happen next year. But they also said that they told their product guys to just take it, take their time. So it might not happen next year too. But um, it's coming sometime. And I guess they just couldn't put out this speed bump to the Mac Pro without um, acknowledging the elephant in the room, which is that no one wants a speed bump to the Mac Pro. They want like a real you know, real upgrade. So, yeah, it's, so it's, that's what's happening with the Mac Pro. But then we got a lot of other interesting tidbits too. Yeah, we'll do, let's, read, let's do the overview and then we can dive into the bits. Is that good? Well, um, yes. so, so iMac, there is an update coming to the iMac later this year. Uh, we don't have details on what it is, uh, but they are, uh, it's definitely, um, definitely on route. And they were more specific to say this year rather than coming soon or whenever. Um, mm-hmm. One of the reporters asked about the Mac Mini, which is the last of the uh, Mac models. It's not a laptop. Has not been refreshed in quite a while. And, um, you know, I have one. I've owned, I think, five Mac Minis over its lifespan because I have monitors, my own setup, and I haven't needed the higher performance and haven't wanted the all-in-one iMac uh, setup, uh, partly because of cost and space and other things. Mm-hmm. And um, the Mac Mini has not been forgotten is what was said more or less, but uh, no details about 
what's going to happen there. So we don't know if that's that what means- they said about the Mac Pro the whole time. Everyone was like, "Hey, what about the Mac Pro?" They were like, "Oh yeah, we we acknowledge that we sell a computer called the Mac Pro, and that's they, basically all we're saying." And that's what take, they said about the Mac. Ready? I mean, if you crack open, uh, I mean, this was this was kind of how it worked too. If you crack open a, a laptop, a Mac, a Apple laptop, one of the newer generation ones, like the MacBook, the circuit board is very tiny. It's mostly battery, so you could basically take the inside of a you know a MacBook Pro stick it into a case with external ports and you would have a Mac mini. And I, I wonder if they'll do that. I'm trying to remember which model there was a, a model in the past where it was basically like they had uh, done that one way or the other. I think they'd taken one of the, it's, it was as if they'd taken all the specs and features in a laptop and stuck it in a computer case. Um, maybe one of the early iMacs. Anyway, so it's not forgotten. Um, we got some more stats too, but let's, let's dive in on the Mac pro and then we'll go through some of these other, um, these other points too. Okay. Um, cause I got a lot of, a lot of things to say about the Mac Pro. I want to talk about okay, the Mac great. Pro. I want to talk about it. Well, so, you know, first they they didn't, uh, I think John Gerber, um, I think he has the most extensive report on this. You can also find coverage, uh, we'll put in show notes, I expect, uh, TechCrunch, uh, Matthew Panzerino, uh, Mashable, Lance Ulanoff, Axios, uh, Ina Fried, uh, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, <clears throat> let me try that again. <clears throat> can you make a note of that? <laughs> yeah, wait, sorry. That? I'll start that over. Okay. Uh, so you can find uh, they call the coverage from the reporters who were there at uh, Daring Fireball. It's John Gruber, TechCrunch, Matthew Panzerino, Mashable, Lance Ulanoff, Axios, Ina Fried, and BuzzFeed, John Puskowski, if that's how his name is pronounced, and um, or Ina Fried, maybe I'm not sure which is Ina Fried. And uh, they wrote uh, reports, but John Gruber has the most extensive uh, rundown on it, as is his one. He dug into great detail, more than the readers of these other sites will probably care uh, to know about, but us Mac folks do. Um, and so I think one of the distinctions to make here, uh, just at a, um, like the loyalty level is that Apple didn't, uh, no incident was a mistake. Like, uh, John Gerber quotes extensively from what was said. And, uh, some of it is that, um, uh, they came close to talking about the, you know, it as problematic, but they said, sorry, they did not kind of say we did this. We really screwed up. Um, cause Apple doesn't usually do that. This is all unprecedented. Uh, and I think for people, I think, uh, there's enough of an emotional relationship of, uh, especially Mac users who have been using the platform for a long time that getting some vindication of, you know, uh, understanding that people want to stick with the platform, that they have a connection to it, that it's not just necessarily about specifications. Um, I think, uh, this goes some of the distance there to covering it, but not all of it. I'm sure this is not emotionally satisfying for those who are looking for a little more of a feeling like Apple was on their side, but it goes some of the way there. Oh, just the sorry. Well, just the, I think people have been, um, the pro users, which is, uh, just for clarity, you know, it's creative professionals, people using graphics programs, uh, video, it's, uh, developers, um, it's folks who need performance out of the machine. They often need a larger monitor, uh, but they definitely need a lot of uh, a lot of juice to do, you know, three D modeling or video editing or or to run Xcode, which takes a lot of uh, of memory and processor to you know make iOS programs. I've talked to developers a lot about how intensive that is. Uh, they feel like they've committed to a platform if they're still on it. And um, I don't know, Susie, don't you think? I think people have this emotional commitment to Apple, so they may, a sorry may go some distance. I'm not sure if this fills that. I mean, you know, it's technology, it's a product, it's commerce. I'm not sure if that void can be crossed, but, um, well, I mean, the best way to apologize is to acknowledge what you did wrong and then say what you're going to do to make it better. And mm -hmm. that whole second part is missing from this because so, you know, they, they, they said they were sorry, which is good. And they acknowledged that, you know, it's been a while and people are waiting at the speed bump probably isn't going to do it. Um, so, but, but then there's no information past that. Like there's no, like, you know, it's going to be a year. It's going to, you know, like even the people who are like, okay, like now do I, do I upgrade or do I wait or do I just leave right. this platform altogether? They really have no further information to right. make that decision. So they're saying like Apple's acknowledging that they're in a crappy spot, but doing nothing to like help them get out of that spot. So I think that, no, this is not an, an a good apology. I don't think this is going to be satisfying oh, for I thought, people. I thought, who, people want they they want information. Like a sorry is nice, but they just want to know like what they're supposed to do now, and that's not here at all. And then like you know, other times that Apple feels like they've screwed up, they've also like taken an extra step to try to make it right. Like when the the iPhone, the the original iPhone, like they dropped the price, right. they gave 
people who had paid the first like ridiculous price, they gave them a gift card. So they could say like, okay, look, we have a record of everyone who bought the trash can Mac Pro and we're going <laughs> to give you all like 200 bucks off the next Mac Pro right. if you'd like to buy you know, that one when it comes out. They could say that even without saying when it's going to come out. That would be something like there's just no there's no information to like help people like figure out their way forward. I, I agree with you. I thought I was being too harsh. I didn't realize that. I because yeah. um, and it's again, it's like I you know my commitment to the platform. I've been using the Mac since 1985 um, and almost left it at one point in uh, when it seemed like the company was not ever going to release new hardware in the late in like 99. Uh, but um, my commitment is that it's. The Mac matches the way I think. I don't want to use another platform because this is my brain. I've adapted my brain to the Mac, and the Mac is closer to my brain than Windows or Linux or other flavors of operating systems. And iOS is akin enough that it works for me too. So, like, I don't, I don't yeah. want to leave. But I, and I don't think I have the same emotional commitment. But there's a lot of people who react. I think very. Uh, it's a personal thing because this is their livelihood. Um, this is a commitment they made. They've invested thousands, or maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in Apple products over the years. And, uh, and all the hours, you the know. hours. Yeah. This is, it's an intimate relationship with technology, no two ways around it. And, um, I think, uh, John Gruber, uh, you know, talks about, I think he has a really good point. Like if you knew you'd fix what was going on and you now have a roadmap, do you keep it to yourself and aggravate people even further by not talking about it for a year, year and a half until they ship or whatever the time frame is? Or do you do this and aggravate people who know now that they can't get the thing and it's a long way off, but now they know at least it hasn't been abandoned? I think Apple took the mm-hmm. right course, but I agree. Apple could have said, we're giving, uh, you know, uh, 25% of the purchase price of your, uh, you know, the, the, the net purchase price you paid for your Mac Pro. If any, you know, anyone who bought one from 2013 until we ship the new ones, uh, that's going to go as a coupon against your next Mac. They could just say that. They can eat that. They could eat the hundreds of millions of dollars Especially that might cost. Especially if it's like 1% of the Macs they're selling. Oh, my you know? God. Like they, most people are using yeah, laptops. They so. could have made a gesture and committed to it and, and made the financial, you know, they can, they can write and it they on their financials. might when there's actually right. like more information. They still might do something like that. But something, something big would help because people are taking a bite. They're paying, they were paying too much for Mac Pros before today. The new models are more um, cost-effective. But uh, our friend Gordon Ung at... A PC world and others have written extensively about uh, GPUs and uh, high performance units and and so forth. There's so much going on on the GPU side that Apple uh, missed the boat on by believing they could support enough with the architecture and through external plugins or external connections. Um, and uh, so it's way you know people who needed performance left the platform if they could get the software. Um, I would also point out an interesting thing, which is if Apple the Thunderbolt three thing I think really bit Apple here. And that wasn't discussed in the – obviously the Mac Pro revision, the, the speed bump doesn't add Thunderbolt 3. Uh, I've been reading quite a bit about Thunderbolt oh, 3. Oh, I didn't even see that. That's oh, yeah, there's big. No, yeah, well, there's no Thunderbolt 3. That's not going to come until – right. So if Apple had been on a different part of the Thunderbolt 3 cycle, that's a 40 gigabit per second bidirectional connection in the most you know strongest configure the highest performance version of it uh, i was just reading an article about um how people are taking gpus and using external thunderbolt mm-hmm. 3 con- uh, uh, enclosures to use thunderbolt 3 as an external gpu on desktop and other machines this is a feasible thing so if apple had bet a different way if thunderbolt 3 had been ready earlier or they had been able to update this architecture to thunderbolt 3 conceivably they could have had a gpu path at least for the interim until they had a new modular design and they didn't thunderbolt 2 doesn't have the performance necessary to make it uh feasible so um they made some wrong bets it's rare for apple to lock themselves in in such a way that they can't find their way out and i think that's what they were most honest about is they uh and my suspicion is the reason it took so long is they went down dead ends. They are overcommitted to products. As we know, they have a lot of stuff going on. People wondered, has Apple got too many things going on? I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think this says it because they didn't determine until apparently very late in the cycle after years that this architecture was the wrong approach. And since it's all, you know, at least until next year, um, that means that whatever kind of headroom they've had on it, they've been working on this for a year or more with the new architecture, very likely uh, before being ready to make this announcement. Um, it doesn't sound like it's more than a year that they've been working on it, but it means that they made a wrong choice. They knew about it a while ago and they couldn't turn fast enough. So this is a single digit 
percent of max sales is the is one of the points we should make though this is a small percentage of the max being sold um but it affects a very key audience i'm sorry i just want to make sure people recognize that before we go on yeah yeah i mean so they they actually they never really give they they traditionally don't give a split um when they when they talk about like max sales they don't break out you know model numbers with any of their product lines right but they did tell the reporters that were there that it's it's eighty five fifteen i think they said no, no, um, eighty twenty 8020 yeah. laptop uh so that 80% of mac buyers are buying uh laptops and 20% are buying desktops and then so then of those 20% i mean of the 20% of desktop users um most people are not buying the mac pro it's the most expensive so they said it was um it was like a single digit percentages so that could be anywhere between 1 and 9 um and they didn't get more more um, granular than that, but I mean, <laughs> that tells us a lot right there. It does. It but does. it's just that it's, you know, it's the Mac Pro. Like, it's kind of like the flagship, sort of, even though like the MacBook Pro is the one most people have. Like, it just seems like it's like a prestige product. And like you said, you know, all the developers um, um, need something, something really, really big. So, one bright spot that I saw was that they did say that it's modular. So, maybe that means they're going to take a step back to, um, you know, I, I would be surprised if they brought back the actual cheese grater tower, but um, maybe go back to that kind of paradigm where, like, it's a computer that you can open up. You can take something out. You can put something in. They haven't done that in a while. And it's that was what people time. loved about the, the old Mac Pro towers, the G5 towers. That's what people loved about the Mac Mini when, you know, it was... It was easier to do those kind of things. So, so it would be really cool if they if they took it back kind of to their roots on on that one. Um, and then they also said that since it's modular, they're going to be doing a Mac, uh, the Mac Pro, and a display. So, okay, they just had the hiccups um, working with LG on that display. Right. So, I wonder if that's going to be like a Motorola rocker where they tried to partner with someone and it was a bust. And like, let's never speak of that again. And we'll start doing it ourselves again. Um, that could be kind of cool, or maybe, um, they're just going to, um, apply what they learned to LG to make an even better display. We heard some, um, some rumors recently. I can't remember if these were more on the Mac side or the PC side or both, but, um, maybe they'll start putting the GPUs in the display. I don't know if that would help for the pro customers, but maybe they'll, we'll end up with, um, the displays themselves will get smarter and then. It won't matter quite as much like what you're plugging into it. It's well, I think the modular design, something worth pointing out uh, when we talk about the trees, cheese grater edition, is I had a late edition Mac Pro of that model. I bought kind of a low end one, uh, and uh, about a 2007 model, and I could not get Lion to run on it. Like five years later, it mm. was like the last, uh, the earliest supported version. So I eventually I sold it to someone inexpensively. It was very underperforming. I bought a Mac Mini, and then later you could run Lion on it. They fixed whatever was incompatible. So whatever. But here's you're like the, thing. the only person who like replaced a Mac Pro with a Mac. I know, but here's the thing. Five-year difference was 2007 to 2012, right? The 2007 Mac Pro with the cheese grater, the huge case, the expandability. The Mac Mini I bought was two pounds. That thing was, I don't know what it was, 50 pounds, 640 pounds. It was huge. Oh, those things are huge. Yeah, huge and heavy. Um, the Mac Mini I bought in 2012 had all of the performance with like a couple specs different than that 2007 Mac Pro. So I have to ask, like in 2017 or 18 – the modular design they build could be entirely structured, not around, I mean, it doesn't have to be the same kind of thing it was. It could be all around uh, high performance SSDs, no uh, hard, or maybe a hard drive enclosure, maybe not. Maybe it's all internal SSD designs with a plug in architecture for those, which takes up very little space, very little heat dissipation. And the big thing will be room for the biggest GPU sets or multiple GPU cards. Will they, you know, uh, will that be based internally or, or what? So they could make something like a super Mac mini, like a Mac mini tower that um, the key aspect there oh, will be. Oh, yeah. Well, the key aspect. Like a Mac stack where it's like you have different layers. Well, it's possible. You build I mean, your own parfait of computer. Apple could decide to offer GPUs and external Thunderbolt 3 enclosures or in some kind of structure. So you never, I mean, when they say the modular. The design looks so pretty where they look like Legos on your desk. Right, because the big issue is heat dissipation for GPUs. And, and you mentioned putting GPUs in the display. That works for 
uh, end users. It doesn't work for developers because the GPU is now being tapped as the GPU has become an engine of computation. And um, for you know, it's using game, you know, it's using games, it's using 3D calculation and all that. Uh, but it would make sense they could have a monitor that had its own GPU to avoid even having to use the computer GPU, which is already you know, which you may have upgraded, which is devoted entirely to rendering and computation or development tasks. So. Um, all these things they could do. And again, a Thunderbolt 3 monitor with a GPU in the, in the monitor um, and Thunderbolt 3 connecting it for high performance back and forth. There's a lot that could be done. So I'm kind of excited about what they will build, um, throwing away all the templates, throwing away the garbage can design, throwing away the cheese grater design, um, looking to the future. It's going to be exciting. Uh, but as you say, uh, if you're a user today, you're a pro user, what do you do? Uh, so a friend of the show, Brianna Wu, tweeted about this, said, look, she read all the coverage. And, uh, you know, she's a game developer and she's always, she's like burns, she burned out a MacBook Pro because she's using Unreal Engine and uh, these other tools that are uh, for 3D rendering and uh, it it really pushes the limits of everything out there. And she's pointed out before in a way that a lot of people haven't that the Macs are too underpowered for um, virtual reality for, and, and what she tweeted this morning after these announcements, I think is, is extremely valid. So you should listen to, uh, Brianna Wu has a, a podcast called rocket with, uh, Simone de Rochefort and, uh, Christina Warren. It's a great show on the relay network. And I'm sure Brianna will talk about this, uh, much more on that, but, but she pointed out the augmented reality that Apple wants to do. That's clearly signaling it wants to do it's current generation machines. It's not that they lack the processing power. It's an issue. The software isn't there. She said the software for 3D modeling and rendering, um, which is required for AR because you're dealing with 3D space. Even if you're not rendering a virtual environment, you're rendering stuff onto a 3D space. Um, she said that's migrated to other platforms because of, of uh, computational issues. So even if the power existed in the current uh, yeah. Mac Pros and iMacs. So and they won't stop talk stop talking about how much Tim Cook loves AR. Right. So it may be in the now I assume because Apple does this, they may be talking in the back to Unreal and um oh what's not Unity. There's another uh, major developer or other companies who develop this software. Uh, I mean, you know, so Brianna was pointing out most of the pro software is Adobe and Apple. And there's not the same robustness there that there used to be. So Apple may be trying to do deals. Uh, with companies that make these other uh, make these engines and so forth, and give them early seated units of this new fancy hardware uh, to get them back on the platform. Because you know the best thing would be is they roll out a Mac Pro announcement and they say, "Here we have you know forty seven CPUs and uh, <laughs> the fastest GPUs in the land." And oh, by the way, here are company software companies X and Y showing that their software works on the platform. That that would make a splash. It would bring people. They do uh, that a lot platform. at WWC yeah. when they're previewing the next iOS. Like they'll bring up like you know the Unity game engine team or something and say that like Unity. we gave them access to the SDK for six days and they made this amazing tech demo and yeah and those are always really cool. So maybe we'll actually see a Mac on stage because they'll have like stuff to show off. Yeah, I mean maybe 2018 WWDC that'll be the that'll be a good target because it hits that market. Um, so that's not to say that you know anyone will be disappointed, but it's more like in the next X months before this thing has a shipping date and actual specs and price, developers will continue who need performance will be continuing to leave because now they know there's a roadmap. They don't know what it is. They don't know what it's going to cost. They don't know what it looks like, but they know it's happening. they're going to keep us like clued in or if we're just not going to hear anything else until it's ready. I or if they'll be like, hey, it's been three months. Like, here's an update. I mean, because that would be very on Apple, but you know, so they've this. shown us that they're willing to mix it up a little bit. I know. It's cool. It's interesting. Um, what other factor? Oh, I think I don't think I mentioned this yet. This was brought up by Apple uh, too, and it relates to this directly. Is they told the reporters that fifteen percent of Mac users frequently use Pro apps. Fifteen percent use them once a week or more. That like of the of the rest of the group that is. So thirty percent of uh, Mac users fall into the Pro category. Mm-hmm. Most, and they said most of the Pro users are developers. That's increased okay. dramatically based on Xcode downloads. So it's not like they are tracking what you're running on your machine, but they're saying based on Xcode downloads, the pro users are dominated by developers now because there are so many iOS developers. But a friend on uh, on Twitter, Alien Sims, said, uh, but wait a minute. Doesn't this just mean that the other Creative Pro users may have left the platforms to developers of the one that are remaining? Mm. I'm like, oh, Because they yes. can't leave. Developers, like, you can't you, – you need a Mac to make right. iOS app. So at some level – so if you back that out, what you could say is this is a promise to iOS developers that they're not going to be abandoned on providing higher performance environments to support new iOS 
uh, builds and simulations. So at some level, this is Apple telling developers, don't, you know, we know you like iOS. Here's a bump of stuff and whatever. It's less, I think, telling Creative Pro users uh, because Creative Pro users are either going to keep the platform because of uh, software buy-in or maybe they don't have the budget until next year to buy a new machine or they're going to switch to Windows or other, you know, whatever else is available. I mean, there are Linux and other based things out there too for specific industries. Um, so I wonder if this whole thing is actually like a really a subtle, not even that subtle, but saying to developers, hey, we know you stuck with us. We're going to get you faster machines. Um, Apple also pointed out that pro users predominantly use MacBook Pros. Then yes. they use iMacs. Then they use Mac Pros, which just tells you where the power went to. Yeah. Yeah, and if they are all developers, you know, or if the, the, the percentage of pro users that are developers is growing, like Apple's in a pretty unique position to know exactly what those people want. And um, while there isn't like a clear roadmap for what's going on with the Mac Pro, I mean, you know, we, we kind of see what's happening with the MacBook Pro, like it's been updated much more faithfully. And then um, they kind of teased that the iMacs that are coming out would have, you know, sort of um, oh, like high yeah. end iMacs for the pro and, and, um, you know, more family friendly iMacs for um, people who don't need all the power, but like the, the high end iMacs are really good. So, I mean, um, my, my closest friends who are um, creative pros are really more in like the, the art side, um, like graphic artists and designers and stuff. And uh just this is all anecdotal, but they've all kind of gone from from the the cheese grater uh, Mac Pros to the iMacs. Like everyone, when their G5 tower or when their Mac Pro died, they all ended up buying the high end iMacs and are pretty happy with them. But then, you know, you can have like display issues. Like my iMac has like vertical lines on it and that kind of thing. So, so having something more modular can can help um, squeeze out more life from it. Um, if you you make a big investment in this machine, you want to get every year of use you can out of it. Um, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do, but yeah, a lot of this market is served by, um, other computers that are already out. And, uh, the surface pro I know has made some inroads. People have really liked it because it's both a monitor and a drawing tablet. We just got one. We just got one in the office. I get to try it this week. They're going to have Roman and I both try it and give our impressions and then put that in with the PC world uh, review. People are very positive. I mean, for all we know, Apple could be, and it's not, it's not ridiculous to think that Apple could have a Surface Pro competitor, but um, I mean, I guess you'd say that's the they iPad Pro. They kind of teased it in the thing. They were but, like, oh, yeah, it's the iPad Pro, and we just encourage you to buy multiple devices, yeah, ha, quite. ha, ha, which it's is like, quite. yeah, yeah. Like, it gets there, but you need third-party software to really make it work, which is, you know. So Microsoft yeah. found there was a gap between desktop and um, – I mean, you know, instead of a touchscreen desktop, having a drawing the tablet. The iPad Pro got a USB-C port. And that's the other thing. I'm expecting an iPad Pro update. Like, I think that's the next oh, yeah, piece yeah. of hardware they're going to they're gonna refresh. And I think that could come really soon. Um, so what else do we need to talk about with this? This is a lot of information um, at one level. Another was there were a lot of things that we, um, we, still, we still don't know. Uh, I think... Um, there, oh, one more thing, just oh, yeah. on this idea of switching, and uh, since I mentioned we're going to be doing the Surface Book um, or the Sur- Surface Studio, uh, uh, you know, hands-on with, with with the PC World team. Also over at PC World, um, our columnist uh, Seamus Bellamy, who writes "Have Gear Will Travel" for MacWorld, he's doing a thing for PC World on switching from the Mac to the PC. He's like, "You guys want to publish that?" I'm like, "Heck no!" But I'll definitely read it over at PC World. <laughs> so I only bring it up because of this this interesting thing. Like, obviously, it's all anecdotal, but it's very interesting to see, you know, the thought process and how hard it really is um, to switch from one side. Obviously, developers are are pretty locked in. Yeah. Yep. Um, oh, a couple more stats. I, Apple, God, they, they talked a lot today. This is unusual. Uh, they said, um, and I think some of this, well, at least some of this was out in the, uh, in earnings and so forth. So none of this is, uh, they can't leak secrets, obviously, because they have to go through a process as a public company. Um, but they pointed out, so Mac sales were up in 2016, outpacing the PC industry as a whole, which we, which we remember, um, that Apple, even when its sales growth has tapered down, they're still, uh, far exceeding the contraction in the industry. Um, and MacBook Pro, uh, they said, I think this may be new, MacBook Pro's sales are up uh, 20% year over year. Um, it's a $25 billion business for Apple, the Macintosh line. 
It's not small. I mean, that's a lot of money. And uh, there are also 100 million people worldwide using Macs. I mean, actively using Macs. They measure that by software updates and uh, other factors. So um, that is a lot of people. And it's funny. It's easy to think of it as a small business, unimportant compared to the iPhone in particular. But, you know, it's um, it's still uh, it's important. It's profitable. And uh, they're still committed. So. That's good. We wondered, right? We wondered what was going to happen. We thought it was going to fade away. Oh, I know the other part we should mention is Apple also talked about its commitment to its Pro app. So Final Cut Pro X, Logic Pro X, um, continuing to work on uh, on those. So, um, oh, and I'm sorry. I said something wrong about the Pro audience. I realized I said the majority of Pro users were software developers. That's not what they said. What they said is oh. it's the plurality. They didn't say it the way they said it. I realized looking at it again, it's the largest <laughs> single group uh. is software developers. So it could be 30% are software developers, yeah. 25% are graphic designers, 20% are video professionals, and you know 10% are doing 3D modeling. So uh, you know even if it's one in three, that's still a very large percentage of um, their users. And it's one that can't move, as you point out. They have a... a locked in audience um what was there was one oh yeah one other point was the uh i guess that might be it boy did we cover all the it's a lot of stuff okay so deep breath and on to some other news it's weird because it's a lot of stuff but then there's no like you know what do i do now (laughs) yeah It's, it's a lot of stuff but still a lot of questions um yeah. Oh, I know the one thing. So we didn't mention that it doesn't, not a big deal, but the, uh, so the upgrades are, uh, they're minor, but the upgrades are, uh, that the, um, Mac pro, uh, will bump for the prices stay the same. So it's 3000 and $4,000 for the uh, entry level models. And it, the $3,000 model goes from six cores to, uh, uh, from four cores to six cores rather, and upgrades the GPU from a D, uh, dual AMD fire pro D 300 to D 500. And the um, $4,000 model goes from six cores to eight cores and gets a D700. And the $3,000 model also gets a little bit more memory. So um, it's a bump. It's a bump. And people who are holding out might do that now. They know, like, this is the best Mac Pro I'm going to get. I want a faster device like this. They opt for it. But uh, I'd be curious to see performance. I know the MacBook Pro uh, can't outpace the Mac Pro. But uh, I wonder with Thunderbolt 3 if that makes it a more desirable machine because of the throughput that they can get for external devices. Um, Related, sort of related, uh, Apple has dropped its GPU supplier. And I don't think I really knew much about this to be quite, quite frank um, that it was using imagine uh, imagination uh, was a company they were using for um, a number of different technologies, including the iPhone for the GPU and um, the company (laughs) imagination. I don't know. Do you see that what they put out? Their press release was pretty harsh. It was like, no, uh, I didn't. it was like, uh, well, we don't see how Apple will be able to create its own GPUs with, uh, using oh. intellectual property that doesn't infringe on our rights. Like, oh yeah. Okay. Do you want the quote? I, I have it right yes, here. Yes, please. Great. Apple okay. has not presented any evidence to substantiate its assertion that it will no longer require imagination's technology without violating imagination's patents, intellectual property and confidential information. So, yeah, they're basically saying, I don't think you can do this without ripping us off. But we'll see. So these are GPUs for the iPhone, iPad, iPod, watch, and TV. So, yeah, yeah. we'll see. I don't know. Well, they have, I mean, Apple has its own fab, uh, not its own fab, rather. It has its own chip development company. And uh, conceivably, uh, we know, this is the interesting thing about, um, I think that uh, we've talked about a bit before, is, is Apple has labs, right? They're always building stuff. We know that when someone says, gosh, I wonder if Apple could ever switch to ARM-based uh, processors for Macs. Like, well, I know they're running ARM-based Macs somewhere in a lab. They're testing it out. They're making yep. builds. They have the whole team working on it. I don't know this like someone told me. I just know this because they're a smart company. And we know this is how every previous well, innovation. It's like knowing they're working on, you know, like 2019's iPhone already. Right, like, right. It's just kind of like, we know, we yeah, know the sun's coming up It's tomorrow. happening. And and. Yeah. It, if you didn't think Apple was that smart, you have to just only look back at every previous transition they've done where they've said like, yeah, we've had uh, such and such running for four years in a lab. We decided <laughs> it was finally ready. Or the iPad where they basically designed the iPad in 2000. 
five was it or six? Yeah, it was before the iPhone. Right. Then right? released the iPhone and then they were just basically waiting until technology caught up so they could release an iPad affordably. So there were iPads kicking around. Um, in but they kept it so way. secret they didn't run the same OS at the beginning. Right, exactly. They were well, on they, different versions because the iPhone team, the iOS team didn't know about the iPad. No, it's pretty – Exactly. Exactly. It's pretty cool. But so anyway, so we know that like Apple, it's, I mean, so Apple has had to have, if they're ditching in imagination, they have had some kind of uh, what they call, um, I think it's called clean room for uh, intellectual property. It's as if you're designing something in a you know clean room, but you're, they take, they have people and they make sure they are not exposed or looking at the spec or at the um, actual information that's used. In fact, they may even find people who have not been involved in developing uh, you know, working closely with the GPU code so they don't overlap. And then they will vet it extensively. And, you know, then there might be a lawsuit. Who knows? Because Imagination just lost a ton of business and its stock also dropped substantially uh, in early trading. So uh, anyway, Apple, they're they're always working on stuff. As we know, Apple does not want to cede its future to relying on other companies' roadmaps, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, yeah, so it's like they could buy this company or they could uh, you know, try to make it themselves. And that's they're probably going to be working in, in one or both of those directions until they achieve that. Yeah, and I would also say uh, – exactly. And I'd also say that um, uh, Apple – I would I think the Macintosh line – I mean Apple did not mention Intel. They're, they're a good partner. They didn't bitch and moan about it. They just talked about their own issues and what they're doing in architecture and GPU. But Intel's slip on the roadmap and some other Intel issues that have affected PC makers as well, but to a lower extent because the PCs tend to iterate much faster. Um, the market's faster and the margins are lower, so they ship out new stuff right away. Um, Intel's roadmap uh, certainly constrained Apple's ability to meet what it, uh, what it was thinking of doing, right? So, um, but they didn't blame Intel, only blame themselves to the extent they blame themselves. <laughs> Should we talk about some privacy and security stories before we finish up this week? Yeah. Yep, for it. All right. So Trump signed that terrible bill. (laughs) I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm taking your privacy away on Capitol Hill. There's my new song. Um, uh, It's a long, long way from the committee. Um, So uh, the bill, this is what's confusing. I wrote a column about it that you edited and we posted a few days ago. Um, a lot of early reporting got it wrong, and it was a lot of mainstream, and the folks in the technical press were like, no, 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 wait, and the people report on privacy. Uh, the Obama administration had promulgated new rules that would have uh, restricted the kinds of information that ISPs could uh, extract and market and so forth. Uh, but it wasn't put into effect. So the, tr- the, uh, the bill passed by Congress, signed by President Trump uh, recently, uh, before we record this, um, essentially – prohibits those rules from going to effect. And I believe it also prevents the FCC from formulating new rules in that area. Uh, it leads it to the FTC, which has much more limited. Um, the FTC cannot uh, initiate actions against companies unless like certain kinds of tests are met. So you can't just have a rule and they break the rule. Um, the FTC can't make a rule like that. The FCC could, uh, and now it can't. So, what this means is ISPs are in the same situation they were last year in the years preceding, but they have, have indications uh, that they can go full steam ahead with plans that they may have held up because they were expecting that either they be restricted or they'd be under more scrutiny. So um, this doesn't mean that all of them are about to you know, track all your browsing habits and all that, but uh, you know it's valuable marketing information, and if they can do it and it's legal, they're going to. So you should all um, consider how you feel about it. Write letters to your ISPs. Um, a lot of markets have uh, are monopoly or duopoly providers, so you're choosing. Yeah, it's hard to switch. Like right? if you don't, if like, if you only have Comcast and you don't trust Comcast because they're Comcast, like it's hard to switch. I was looking into options around here, and I can get Sonic, which is like a local ISP that people really like, and they use AT and T's data lines, which I guess are better than they used to be, but they're very privacy focused, and they're like, "Look, we're not going to do this." No, Sonic. Sonic um, runs its own. Sonic does a combination. They also run their own. Um, oh yeah, wire, it, but I guess it's just in, in my area. Oh like yeah, yeah. Depending on where they're at, they have to. Yeah, uh, I put in my address. That's that's a that's a good distinction, though. Thanks for for that. Um, yeah, because it it depends on where you are and what they can get to your house. Yeah. At my address, they would be using AT and T's data lines. But in some markets, there are, um, you know, there's like the Chattanooga Fiber Company. If you're happening yeah. to live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, if uh, in my market, uh, I've got CenturyLink, 
which I don't know. I mean, they're like a failing telephone company that's putting fiber out as fast as possible. So I have da, 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 gigabit fiber from them. Sorry, just have to say it. Sorry, listeners. Regular listeners are now groaning. Oh, take a drink. I know. Glance Fiber. Um, but so CenturyLink has every motivation in my mind to push the privacy angle. And I expect to probably send them a letter as a consumer and say, hey, what are you going to do about this? Because uh, I have options and uh, maybe they're not better. But if you're not going to show me you're better, then I will consider my options. Because I believe uh, in my market, I think Comcast has or will soon be rolling out a gigabit um, uh, over cable um, with different restrictions. But still – so, um, yeah, I mean, this is the, the fundamental problem with broadband in America is a lack of competition. No, I'm sorry. It's two fundamental problems. Wait, three, <laughs> three, there are three fundamental problems. So it's, there's a lack of competition in most markets. There's uh, a paucity of uh, high speed service of like truly high speed service and it costs too much. So in most other developed nations, even ones in which, um, it's fully like a commercial. It's only competitive, no government involvement at all, and not even maybe government price regulation. There are typically multiple providers. There's a neutral path. So there might be um, companies that provide infrastructure and then others who sell service over it. And the price, you can get much higher speeds and you pay much less per megabit per second for them. And uh, so we are we suck. Um, and that the abomination <laughs> look, and so for people who want to get political about it, you know, I, I don't want to get political. It's more like no administration has actually helped improve competition. Democratic, the Clinton administration oversaw a bunch of terrible uh, broadband decisions and and, uh, and failed to, to preserve an early DSL and cable competitive market. Uh, Supreme Court ruled against uh, in a way that the Congress could have repaired rules uh, to allow competition over cable wiring. Uh, the Bush administration did practically nothing. The Obama administration put out reports and did not and and um, did not actually implement anything that increased competition. And so now here we are. So everybody's at fault for the current landscape. <laughs> no, yeah. it's a bipartisan failure to improve our broadband infrastructure. I would agree with that. So hopefully, I mean, is there still kind of a, a, a movement afoot to make it like, a, you know, classify it as a dumb pipe and just make it like a utility? I don't think that can happen. They can regulate it like water or power. No, I mean the um, the FCC is now controlled by a guy who's very pro industry, and Mm, um, uh, it's unlikely under this administration we'd see those kinds of changes. Even though a number of conservative thinkers, to be again not to be political, but just to be fair, a number of conservative thinkers would prefer that broadband, not necessarily that it was run as a utility, but that it was um, broken up into a different. Uh, way of pr- promoting competition because uh, conservative ideology abhors a monopoly. A monopoly is a failure of a market. You want to have as much robust competition as possible on a level playing field and then not play favorites. So um, so no ideology has one. We have like the worst of all possible ideologies, uh, economic ideologies playing out. Imagine and no if the fix. internet market was like the cell phone market, like, you know – well, if, they, I know. if they had the competition and kind of price wars going on for your home service that there was for your mobile service, yeah, that would be it, amazing. It's what should have happened at one point is that um, broadband providers – or sorry, telephone companies and cable companies should have been uh, prohibited. I mean this is – I'm going to sound – this is capitalism. It's not socialism, folks. Um, they should have been prohibited because of the fact that they were given preferential treatment for rights of way. Uh, and preferential treatment under the Telecom Act of 1996 and a bunch of other rules, they were already given a privileged position by government. So, so telephone companies and cable companies were monopolies. They were natural monopolies that were established. So to allow a natural monopoly to extend to a new market in which they are allegedly in competition uh, is a market failure. Um, take out your textbook and turn to page 385 and we'll continue. Uh, but, but seriously, that, that was the point. So in the nineties, there could have actually been a movement that said, no, you have to be a dumb pipe and here's, you have to allow all connection and whatever, but you get to run your dumb pipe business the way you want to under, because you're highly regulated and you have, because you get all of these advantages as a natural monopoly because of the physical infrastructure, uh, then you would have had Retail brands offering different services, different connections to that dumb pipe. It would have been in the interests of the dumb pipes to build out infrastructure to have to make more money from all the retail brands that were uh, coming to them. And uh, that's what's happened in other markets. Other markets basically went dumb pipe retail brand route and um, have robust competition, lower prices, faster performance. It's not – it's sort of like um, healthcare. No, I didn't say it. Never mind. Oh, it wasn't there. I never said anything. It wasn't here. It wasn't here. <laughs> Email Glenn. Email me. Complain to me. Um, one last story. 
before we finish up, maybe. Uh, LastPass, uh, I want to talk about LastPass and password management apps because we talk a lot about them on the show. And um, Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, one last thing. Sorry, the previous story. So I also wrote about um, using uh, virtual private networks and um, uh, people have been re- recommending those as you can use a VPN because it t- uh, to uh, protect yourself in different ways. And we often recommend it if you're at a hotspot or any public network or untrusted network. A VPN encrypts all the data coming to and from your machine. It puts it in like a tunnel that's totally encrypted. No outside party can see the insides of that between you and the VPN termination point, which is a server at a data center somewhere or a server at your company if you're connecting to a corporate VPN. So this prevents local sniffers from looking at you. That can include the an ISP because the ISP also can't peek into your tunnel and see what's happening. They only know a tunnel is going from you to somewhere out in the internet. Um, there's a difference if you want to protect yourself against government forces or surveillance and um, uh, ISPs and sort of retail companies trying to sniff what you're doing. So I, I would say there are different factors. And earlier this year, I wrote several columns about privacy in the age of surveillance. Um, the one I wrote recently is if you're really primarily trying to protect your privacy as opposed to your security and um, protect against government intrusion, you have more choices. A VPN is a, can uh, it, because it prevents your ISP from seeing what you're doing, what you're browsing, what you're downloading. Um, it's great uh, if you're, uh, uh, but you need to look very carefully at the VPN provider. There are uh, thousands of companies offering VPN service because it's very cheap to operate. Uh, some of them are in countries that have uh, limited privacy and uh, other protection, China, Russia, and many other countries. Um, others are run very shabbily and you don't know it because uh, it takes almost no effort to set up a VPN server and start charging people for it. So they may engage in very poor privacy protection or use outdated standards. Uh, so I would look very carefully and look for reviews and try to get information about the business um, that is running the VPN, see where they're based. Um, I recommended Cloak, not because they're necessarily the best company, uh, but I've used them for years. I actually know two of the principals. They're not friends per se, but like they're people I've met in Seattle. So I've met them in person. Uh, their company got acquired by a firm that's based in and, and operates under U.S. law. Uh, based in Texas, and um, they have a very extensive privacy policy that looks great to me. Uh, one, uh, some of my friends pointed out, uh, colleagues, that um, Cloak's one deficit is they do some logging of information. It's very limited, and they only store it for 15 days, and they purge things on a 15-day rolling basis. But they said logging at all means that that information could be then retrieved later because another party could obtain those logs during the 15-day window. So you may want to find a service that does no logging. Some of those exist. Um, but look around, read reviews, talk to people, and um, make sure you're making a good choice. So that's that. Um, good advice. Yeah. So, oh, so Susie, this LastPass thing. Uh, Africa, now, are you a password management app user? Are you one password user? Yes, I'm using one password. Yeah. It's great. As am I. It's amazing. Um, so I'm writing a column for you right now, in fact, about this. So LastPass had another um, security flaw related to its. Um, how its uh, its plugins integrate into a browser, and it's a little subtle. And uh, LastPass has had a number of security issues. A lot of you know some with uh, its URL pattern spoofing, phishing. Uh, they had their database stolen a couple years ago, and um, they got a lot of black eyes. But actually, I got to say, it's funny. It sounds much worse than it is because they've done things uh, well enough so that even when their password database was stolen. Um, no information was lost as far as we can tell because they secured their passwords in a very sophisticated uh, way. Um, so I'm writing a column about like what, what you know, somebody wrote in a question saying, well, is, you know, LastPass seems to have issues and I'll explain why, you know, what the issues are and why they aren't as bad as they seem uh, because all the security flaws discovered were not discovered in the wild. They were discovered by researchers. Um, so it's unclear whether any of them were exploited, but also they asked one uh, password has its one password.com service that does store passwords for you if you're a subscriber in uh, 1Password's own server, or AgileBits, the company's uh, own servers. And the reader asked, you know, is this like LastPass? Am I subjecting myself to the same thing? And it's very different. And so I'm running a column kind of explaining what you should be looking for for password management, what LastPass and 1Password and 1Password.com, they have a standalone app and their subscription service, how those vary. Um, Because it's a little complicated, but... uh, um, I like one password because I like, um, having, they do kind of endpoint. They don't by default, as you know, they don't, uh, you can sync all your data, but they don't store stuff centrally unless you subscribe to the service. Even then 
they um, never have access to your password and their passwords are never passed. Your password to unlock any of your stored information is never passed to and from their servers, even if you use onepassword.com. So at some level, uh, they don't really have access to any of your information, even though you're using their servers. So um, I'll go into that more in the column. Um, this is, by the way, how iCloud Keychain works. Apple doesn't store your passwords on their servers when you use that. It stores encrypted versions to which they don't have access. That's why, Susie, you, you've ever had that issue where um, you get this weird prompt about you need to confirm your iCloud keychain access. You'll get some yeah, strange. Yeah, I got it like three times before we started this podcast. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I mean, something, before we started this podcast. Something's going on because I've gotten uh, – my wife got that recently and uh, Rita wrote in with this. She could not get it to dismiss. And I, I did just a switch things. from two-step to two-factor, so I thought that – all of my iCloud weirdness was Maybe. probably stemming from that. It might be something else, but you're supposed to be able with iCloud Keychain. You're supposed to be able to uh, you set up like you set it up on one machine, and that machine is trusted. And then you should be able to acknowledge from that machine when you add additional devices like iOS or macOS devices uh, to iCloud Keychain. You're supposed to be able to say like, okay, you have a pin you can use, or you confirm it from a machine. I think something may be slightly broken temporarily in that because I've been hearing a lot of, well, not a lot, a little buzz about it. Uh, you're the third person who's uh, said something about it in the last few days. Uh, but iCloud Keychain, again, Apple doesn't sync. Apple, unlike iCloud, where you're logging in with your username and password to get access to your photos and um, uh, music library, contacts and calendars, iCloud Keychain does not store that as a password protected thing. It encrypts everything on each machine in a way that only each machine that's connected can decrypt it. So Apple acts as a conduit, but it has no access to that even if it were compelled to provide access. Um, and that's how 1Password.com works in effect as well. LastPass protects things with a, an account password. I think I've worn out the listeners. What do you think? Uh, yeah. Okay. We've had a lot of news this week, folks. We're a lot of talk. <laughs> um, Susie, great to talk to you again. And I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about with these Macs after we get a little more information, more will leak, I'm sure. We'll hear more. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to hear more. It might be a while. It could be. Um, I, bet yeah. we'll, I bet we'll hear more. Now that this is out of the bag, we'll probably hear some more leaks and things because people will be willing to talk about stuff since it's not a secret. And Apple will probably – I mean, the other thing is here's the advantage to Apple – by explaining this to the public, I just realized internally they don't have to keep it as secret anymore. So they can open yeah, more, they can get more true. teams involved in it without it being something where they have it because a very small group of people were probably involved in this. Now they can involve a larger group of internal people with, with security, but not with the same uh, concern that something would get out. Uh, so there you go. There's our final conclusion. Uh, folks, this has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 553 for April 5th. 2017. You can find us, you know, at Macworld.com. You can contact us, uh, you know, on the Facebook, facebook.com slash Macworld. Podcast at Macworld.com will reach us via email. On the Twitter machine, we are uh, at SFSoz, S-F-S-O-O-Z, like Zed. And I'm at Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N-F. My dad jokes are killing words, so watch out. Um, thanks for joining us again this week, and we will see you again in about seven days.